and welcome to the 23rd blockbuster episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that would never sell a Black Lotus to Martin, well, for anything less than 10000 MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation, and boy, what a week it has been. I am your host, James Chilcott, aka MTG Critic on the interwebs, and my co-host is Cliff Daigle a.k.a. Word of Commander, and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey, you guys. I'm really glad to be here. I'm looking forward to sharing some valuable information with all of you. Uh, this show is sponsored, of course, by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best minds in the hobby. Cliff, what do you got for the folks today? Well, this week we're only doing three segments. Uh, first of all, we're going to talk about the top movers. We're going to talk about what was big in the gains, and there's so much to cover there. We're going to also go over our picks of the week. We're going to talk about some of the things that we think have not spiked yet, although uh, we need to check it hourly. Uh, we're going to skip our usual segment about tournament results. Last week was the 4th of July, and there were no big constructed tournaments to be uh, covered. But there's a whole lot to talk about with all these spoiler spikes and buyouts. And let's get right to our top movers and let's talk about the theme we have. James? Folks, this, this has been one of the craziest weeks for spikes and buyouts that I've ever seen um, in MTG Finance. Uh, the last week that reminded me of this was the weekend in November of 2014 at GP New Jersey when... Uh, Containment Priest. Well, and power, specifically uh, Lotus and, and the Moxes, all took a huge jump when Star City set a new buy list plateau, um, and suddenly the Lotus I had just traded into was worth $1,000 more overnight. Um, I mean, we've been seeing spikes all winter, all spring, you know, a couple here, a couple there um, on some of these reserve list cards, but this this is now a full court press. Um Money is flowing is flowing into the market. Uh, we had the the one guy that was posting videos about a couple of big buyouts he did on Moat and a few other cards over the last month or so, and um, the community went all crazy about that. And then our our dear uh, comrade uh, in arms, Corbin Hostler, did an interview with Craig uh, Craig Berry, I believe his name is. Uh, maybe if I got that wrong, my apologies. No, you got it right. They, and uh, and in the article. <laughs> He was compared, as he had been in social media all week, to uh, Martin Schreckel, the, the CEO of a pharma company in the U.S. who was infamous uh, last year for bumping up the price of an AIDS drug um, to ridiculous levels and, uh, you know, purely as a uh, pursuit of profit kind of thing. And, you know, I was out there telling people that's not, that's not the guy. It's really not that bad. It's not the same thing at all. And we'll talk about that a little later. Um, but it's funny because when you invoke the name of the devil, the devil will appear. And <laughs> now, now we're in the midst of this uh, insane scenario where uh, Martin Shreckle has gone on to social media and started talking about um, being interested in purchasing black lotuses, and and it's you know one of the greatest troll jobs perhaps of all time. Yes, uh, I we were talking about this right before the show. Definitely top five, and uh, I'm. 
looking forward to seeing what other panics he can go on and inspire in other communities. Is he going to focus on collectibles? Is he going to go on other things? I don't know, but to have this kind of power is just truly uh, amazing, and I hope he continues to use it for amusement. Well, this is the guy that bought a Wu-Tang Clan album um, just so he could <laughs> prevent right. anyone else from having it. So, I mean, we know that he's he loves to troll, um, that he's a master of, of you know, building uh, press through negative public relations, um, that he's fully comfortable in that role. Um, and n- none of us really know what he's doing. Like, you know, but plenty of us were, you know, tweeting at this guy saying, you know, receipts or it didn't happen because he was claiming he bought five lotuses the other night. Um, that is the greatest phrase I've ever heard. I'm going to make note of this for future generations. Receipts or it didn't happen. Yeah. I mean, but he doesn't need to. I mean, he doesn't need to prove anything to anybody. I mean, he was covered. The, the, an article was posted you know, by Corbin, and then it was uh, turned into a thing by Kotaku, uh, a blog that covers anime and video games and stuff. And then uh, CNBC picked it up, and then it went to The Wire, and it was all over the place. So... You know, he's already gotten what he needed out of this, which is free exposure um, and publicity. And, you know, it's not really even doesn't really even matter whether he starts buying into magic power, um, which I'm sure he will. But to some limited extent until he gets bored, Um, it's about the tens of thousands of people that had no idea there was anything called Magic the Gathering that had this thing called the reserved list that led to some cards being, you know, performing better than the stock market. Uh, that are suddenly going to turn their attention and start doing some research. And it really only takes, you know, 10 or 50 or 100 of these dudes with deep pockets, um, you know, men or women that are suddenly excited to get into the reserve list or magic cards in general to start seeing some price movement. And uh, it has certainly been a busy week because everybody was aware that the reserve list was under pressure. Um, you know, Craig Berry wasn't the first to, to lead buyouts on it. Vendors have been buying up stuff for a long time. Um, plenty, you know, I've been stocking away reserve list cards here and there, you know, a few at a time, not making it a huge priority, but you know, it's just accelerated to the point where we have a massive pile of cards to go through. So let's, let's get through this pretty quick. I mean, the commentary on all of these is pretty much the same because 90% of the things that pop this week are reserve list cards that are popping for no better reason than they are on the reserve list. So kick me off with the first mover from the bottom of the list this week. So starting at the bottom is a card that we've already talked about before. It's continuing its rise up the charts, but this is the smallest gainer percentage-wise on the week. Jazam Dijin out of Arabian went from 580 up to 740, only gained about 30%, but it's just continuing its rise as one of the both collectible cards and one of the best cards to play in 9394. Uh, it's huge. It doesn't die to terror or lightning bolt. So it's posh airs or get out. Yeah, I mean, people that didn't play back in in that era wouldn't really understand why this card's a big deal. It was it was the chase creature. It was like the Tarmogoyth of its day. Um, uh, there weren't very many great mid range creatures at that point. Nope. Uh, the only thing that was close was Nightmare in dedicated black decks. I remember being very afraid of Nightmare back in the day. Yeah, it had iconic badass art that had been used on a whole bunch of magic magic product. It had appeared in in tournament winning decks. 
Um, it was the kind of thing that, you know, would get, you're trying to ramp up to your like five, five for eight. And this guy's slamming it down on turn four. Um, so, I mean, there's a little bit of a nostalgia factor behind Jism. It's a little, a, a lot about 93, 94, and it's also just, you know, it's on the reserve list. I still cannot believe this card is, you know, three quarters of a thousand dollars at this point. The, you know, these were readily available for a long, long time, uh, well under a hundred dollars. That's um, going to be a theme we encounter uh, this entire time, that all of this is stuff that's been available, and only recently has there either been a lot of interest or a lot of money movement, and it's just, there's going to be a, a, a continuous phrase of, well, if you bought it, you're in luck. If you didn't, well, you probably didn't need it anyway. Yeah, I mean, this is the point where I'm starting to get jealous of my father, who's you know been in Magic as long as I have. Um, it was my girlfriend in college that uh, taught us both how to play, and he's been hooked ever since. He's spent tens of thousands of dollars on Magic Online and a pile of money completing his Magic collection. So he literally has one of everything, at least. Um, <laughs> and and when he was doing that, like, five years ago, I was like, what are you doing? Like, you don't need it. You, you don't even care about this stuff. Like, you just put them all in the binder and then put them away in the closet. Um, and now I'm feeling like he made some very smart moves on these older sets. I mean, complete sets of Arabian Nights and Legends and Antiquities are appreciating at a very fast clip at this point. Um, you know, his power has done well. Uh, yeah. All of the kind of tier two stuff is doing very well. You know, spare copies of, you know, Cradle and, and Sarah Sanctum and all the stuff that we're going to get to that he's got lying around um, are showing very healthy appreciation. And uh, it's pretty cool because he gets to tell his wife to shove it, who's been telling him his magic cards aren't worth anything for ages and ages. And uh, he's now looking at a very healthy uh, gains on his collection that I think is stock market market portfolio is going to have trouble matching this year <laughs> comparing it to the stock market is a powerful comparison uh, i think most of us who've been playing for a while have stories about what we've bought and what we've done with the money i know you've taken trips uh i can tell you that in 2001 2002 uh, i sold off a blue counterspell deck whose win conditions were two rainbow of and the full set of Mishra's factory. I had four tropicals in there, four force of wills, a library of Alexandria, a mock sapphire, and I needed a new transmission. And so I got what I needed then, and now I could get a lot more. <laughs> and but you know, you, we we get what we can for what we have at the time. Well, and there's nobody knew ten years ago that we were going to end up here. The you know there was when when lotuses were 500 when they were a thousand we were like well how much higher can it go every time it hit a new plateau people sold out um, not everybody but you know enough people along the way that they started to get consolidated in the hands of of dealers and speculators because it just seemed so crazy that we were paying this much for pieces of cardboard and yet here we are you know down the road 23 years into the game or whatever and you know it just keeps moving. So, I mean, next on the list, we got City of Traders from Exodus, moved from uh, 130 to 170 $40 gain for just about 30%. This is a, a real card because it's played in uh, Legacy Eldrazi builds. Um, uh, the next one, Grim Monolith, has long been a cube and, and EDH card, uh, moved from $50 to $65, uh, $16 gain for about 33%. Um, we also had Gaia's Cradle out of Urza's Saga. 
uh, a card that was destined to tip. I mean, this is a major yeah. card in the Legacy Elves build, um, an insanely powerful um, land from the Urza's block that's really only second to Talarian Academy, which would be $500 if it was actually playable anywhere. But because it's so broken, it's it's banned pretty much everything. Yes, um, Talarian Academy is the poster child for how dumb can we be? <laughs> yeah, you can, you can have a deck with Talarian Academy and all of the uh, Mirrodin block artifact lands, and basically magic is just broken from that moment on. The uh, Yeah, so Cradle... Uh, Big, big gains, up 80 bucks from 200 to 280 for a 40% gain. Um, I think it's a future four or $500 card. If I had to pick something on this list that's just going to keep going, um, that would be there. The There's a Judge Foil, uh, Promo Foil, that I yeah. uh, selected as selected as my um, uh, trophy when I sold the Super Collection. It was the only card I kept. Um, I'm feeling pretty good about that decision now, that it, given that it's up another 200 bucks since I pulled it out of that pile of cards. Um, tell me about the next few on the list, Cliff. Well, uh, next up, percentage-wise, is actually a card that is not on the reserve list. It is a card that really fits in with what would have been a more normal cycle for us as we get previewed new cards, and that's Demonic Pact. We actually made jokes about this card last week, and here it is, and it's one of our top movers. Uh, it's gone up about $1.50 from $3.75 to $5.25 uh, with the new Harmless Offering, it is uh, potentially an instant win combo. You get all your value out of Demonic Pact, and then you hand it to them and say, congratulations, kill it uh, at the end of my turn. Because at the beginning of the upkeep, trigger goes on the stack, GG. Yeah, I mean, the, there's all sorts of things that people want to do with the new Red Donate Demonic Pact uh, being at the top of the list. I outed a bunch of copies for a double up on Puka Trade uh, last night. I'm perfectly happy with that. Just got in. If you got in you know, under $2, you're not going to show any major gains um, shipping these out right now. Um, but, you know, it's a nice little chip, uh, chip shot, and I'm happy to get out uh, before it rotates, at which point I'll probably look to get back in when it drops to like $1.50 or two. Um, so next on the list is the infamous lion's eye diamond. The one that Craig Berry was talking about, uh, whether or not he was the cause, uh, it's gone from $130 up to 200. It's gained about half of its value and it's on the reserve list. It's a four of in storm in legacy storm decks. At least this one is seeing play. This almost makes sense. It's a low supply reserve list card and it's a four of in a, powerful unfair legacy deck this i i can get behind this some of the other ones we're going to talk about make no sense at all right so i mean next on the list we have drop of honey out of arabian nights uh, just a reserve list card that's tough to find 65 dollars to 100 dollars for a 35 dollar gain about 54 percent ditto intuition at a tempest moving up 54 percent from 26 to 40 for a 14 dollar gain and a very similar gain on ancient tomb um, also out of tempest moving from 24 to 38 for a 14 dollar gain that's a legacy eldrazi staple card so i'm not uh, particularly surprised there um, i was happy to see that the ancient foil ancient tomb that i pulled out of my draft winnings um, at oath of the Gatewatch um, had basically doubled up so uh, anybody who was holding those um, you know good on you Ancient Tomb is also uh, one of the more fun things to do in Commander and Cube. Uh, it's first pick in Cube. I would take it over anything but a Mox or a Lotus, pretty much. Yeah. So next on the list? 
next on the list, another standard card. It's so nice to talk about standard and not just be able to rattle off reserve list cards. Relentless Dead has seen a spike. Uh, it's gone up from about 9 to around 15 It's gained two-thirds of its value, $6. And people are testing out zombies, it looks like. There are some really awesome zombie interactions in the new set, and it promises to just give value after value after value. It's a mythic, and it's a, a cheap-to-cast one, and you would absolutely play four of it. So this has potential. Yeah, I picked up a whole bunch of these at GP Toronto in, in between 4 and $5, including a bunch of Japanese and Russian uh, versions. And I'm looking to out now. Uh, I'm not going to get greedy. This could, you know, if the deck does really well and it's persistently a part of the metagame, then it can get up, in, as with any mythic, it can get up into, you know, the 20 to $30 range. But... Um, I'm not going to hold my breath. I, I like the returns thus far, and I'm going to be looking to, to exit on that one. So next on the list, we have City of Solitude out of Visions. This is the green enchantment that uh, basically shuts down uh, counter spells on your turn. Um, going from $5 to $10 for a, uh, a double up. Uh, again, just a reserve list card. Likewise, Sarah's Sanctum out of Urza's Saga moved from 48 to 90 for about an 88% gain, um, $42. Uh, uh, that's a, you know, occasionally played in Legacy card, um, but mostly just because it's reserved list, it's being targeted. Mirror Universe, likewise, out of Legends moved from 60 to 120 for a true double up. Um, I would imagine some of the older collectors have one of those lying around that they'll be pretty happy with right now. Um, what's next on the list? A card that I'm having to look up again because I've looked it up twice and I just cannot remember what Coastkin Falls does. Uh, it's out of Homelands. And it has gone all the way up. Oh, it's an Enchant World. That's why I can never remember it. So uh, it's two black black Enchant World. During your upkeep, tap a creature or bury it. Nothing can attack you unless it pays an attack tax of two colorless mana. So the short version, yet another reserve list card. Nobody's actually playing this, but it's gone from $1.25 up to $3. Yeah, uh, and I just steer clear of that one completely. Humility, on the other hand, at a Tempest, moving from $12 to $34 for a 180% gain. Even if this falls back into the mid-20s, uh, those gains are pretty serious. Um, I had a few of these uh, packed away from February when I first started making plans around the reserve list. Um, but didn't go very deep um, because I just couldn't believe that this would be a, I, I think I had this targeted as like a year and a half to drain the inventory. Um, boy, was I wrong. Um, likewise, Shallow Grave from Mirage uh, popped off last night, uh, went from $7 to 22 finishing up 215% on the week. Um, occasionally played in Tin Fins in Legacy um, and also a legit uh, reanimator card to throw into cubes or EDH decks. Um, so uh, that one's probably going to hold over 20, I would imagine. Um, we also had Island of Wok Wok out of Arabian Nights moving from $45 to $130. This is a land oh nobody God. wanted for oh years God. and years. This thing was like, you, you couldn't have given this away at a certain point. And now this thing's over 100 bucks. Like, wow. I mean, just to, to refresh everybody's memory, this is a, a card that taps to reduce target flying creatures' power to zero. It does not even make it. it it's one of these weird old lands that doesn't even make mana. No. Um, that would never no, be doesn't. published again. Um, so, yeah, up 190% that card this week. Um, 
tell me about the next one on the list since it's uh, I'll gift you with the other non-reserve list card. So uh, next up, we have uh, a card that has really apparently gone crazy due to Popper. It's called Gleeful Sabotage. It's out of Shadowmoor, and it is two, excuse me, one in a green for a sorcery to destroy target artifact or enchantment, and it has Conspire. So you have to tap two creatures that share a color with the spell, so two green creatures of some way, and you get to copy the spell. It's gone all the way from a dollar to three dollars for a two hundred percent gain. Yeah, so that that one's been on the rise in Popper, and lots of people are going to be digging into their bulk boxes trying to yank those out. Um, I suspect some supply will then you know move back into the market. Maybe it maybe it settles in the you know mid two dollar and fifty range kind of thing. Next on the list, we have Helm of Obedience, our third biggest gainer of the week out of Alliances, moving from $12 to $50. This is also a reserved list card, occasionally played in casual formats, um, but just aren't that many of them around. Uh, likewise, Altar of Bone, this is uh, the, the tutor out of Ice Age that moved from $2 to $15 as it was targeted. Um, I mean... I don't know. I don't know if people are trolling picking this ahead uh, ahead of some of our other picks to clean out. But um, I mean, it's a tutor. Um, tell me, tell me your opinion on this for EDH, Cliff. Is this like a viable tutor that's going to be included a lot? No, this is a bad card. There is no other way to put this. It is card disadvantage, and there are so many other ways to do this effect. It's green, white. For uh, you have to sacrifice a creature, and then you go find a creature and put it into your hand. So it's a bad Eladomri's Call. It's a bad uh, Thalia's Lancers. It's a, it's a bad version of so many things. Survival of the Fittest is better. Fauna Shaman is better. I could keep going down the list. There are much better cards to be played. Uh, if, I think, honestly, this is more of a... Go ahead. Oh, I just said Evolutionary Leap would be on that list, I'm assuming. Yeah, there's a whole lot of things on this list. Natural um, Order. Yes, Natural Order is much better. And it has a price to reflect that. But this looks more like somebody was looking at the reserve list and said, hmm, what's cheap? And just started buying all the copies they could find. Because yeah, or, or they just started at A. Yeah, oh, <laughs> that's good. I like that. You're exactly right. They started at A. Oh, my Let's Lord. Let's see. What's at the top of this list? The top of the list is the best part, right? So I guess I'll buy that first. Um, yeah, I, 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 if you can get out on this anywhere over $10, folks, like, go for it. I, I pulled five of them out of the Super Collection bulk uh, this morning, uh, five of the next card we're going to talk about. If I see any demand for them on Puka Trade, like, there was a guy in Greece who wanted one the other last night, and I was like, oh, yeah, like, sold. Here's, happy to ship it to Greece. It's all yours. Um, throw a stamp on it. If it doesn't make it, no problem. Oh, man. I, I don't know if I want to live in the world where Altar of Bone is a plus $10 card. <laughs> so t tell me about the biggest jumper of the week. On a week where over two dozen cards gained more than 30%, what was our biggest reserved list gainer this week? Well, if you thought Altar of Bone was going to give you a headache, let me introduce you to Polar Kraken. <laughs> it's okay if you haven't heard of this card because, again, this is a bad card. This is 11 mana, 8 and 3 blue for a, uh, is it 11-11 or 13? It's an 11-11. Uh, it has trample, thank God. And it has cumulative upkeep of sacrifice a land. So that means 
First upkeep after you play it, you sack one land. Next upkeep, two. One after that, three. Yes, and it is a creature with no protection and no redeeming qualities at all. Yeah, it comes comes into play tap, so it can't even block and stabilize the board the turn that it comes into play. Uh, that's hilarious. And yet, right now, there are... Let's see how many copies have floated back into TCG since it was down to zero. None. There are There is one near-mint copy on TCG. Um, Asking? At uh, $3. Oh, man. Yeah, 320, $3.24 shipped from the <sighs> fine purveyors from Casual Magic. Um, incredible. Uh, th this is going to start pull getting pulled out of bo bulk boxes for sure. This has to flow back into the market, and it doesn't matter anyway because there was never any organic demand. The, the only people that care about this is <laughs> the guy that never finished his Ice Age set that suddenly has to suck it up and pay a few more bucks. I know for a fact that uh, I looked at this card when it first came out. This came out in a, a, a really weird summer where you had Ice Age uh, Chronicles and 4th Edition hitting you like within four months of each other. It was a very yep. compact summer. I remember summer. It distinctly. And yep. uh, we were like, oh my god, this creature is huge. Oh wait, it sucks. It dies to everything. Yeah, and and your acceleration options were not fantastic if you didn't already have no, power at that point. No, it was not. So uh, those of you that are selling Polar Krakens at anything more than, uh, you know, two or three dollars, congratulations. You should do that. You should not expect this to hold any price. Oh no no no! If they sell any of these, I want to hear about it. Like, I want to get I want to get a message from people on Twitter saying "Force crack and sold, booyah," and I'll give you a polite clap. <laughs> There's All a right, lot so of polite claps for some of these cards. Yeah, let's let's move on to our our picks of the week because this is way more exciting. Um, our cards to watch include several reserve list uh, cards that are much more reasonable targets than Polar Kraken. Um, so let me let me kick things off, and let me say this: this is the first week I have ever put any lit card on my list that I had a confidence level over eight. Um, and every card I'm going to mention, I have a confidence level of nine. The I I saw the listen. Let me just break this down for you. All the timelines are confidence level. I mean, all the timelines are short. All the confidence levels are nine. <laughs> They're all on the reserve list, and I expect them all to go down within the month. Um, Starting with Volras Stronghold, which is moving so quickly this morning, and I looked at it last night. There was reasonable inventory this morning. It's the bio's already in motion. Um, by the time you hear this, and I'm going to try to post it same day for once, um, you know it might be too late. But I would look around locally because anybody's slow to reprice. Um, you might still be able to pick these up in the say twenty to twenty-five dollar range. My target on this is fifty. Um, I think this card posts up high. It's a unique effect. It's excellent and casual. Solid and cube, solid and commander, um, and they're just draining right out of the market. Um, they started on TCG. They went a little broader. Um, there's still some copies left on Amazon. eBay still has some. I just picked up a bunch of uh, Japanese copies and local copies this morning. Um, yeah, I, this is this is going the way of the dinosaur. This thing's going to post up for a double. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a. It's a really great card. It's going to do everything you want it to. It's a legendary land, so it's really built for like a commander format. And like you said, it, it's on the list. So if Altar of Bone and Polar Kraken can go up the way they did, doubling up Volras Stronghold, which has already gone up uh, at least once in the past year. So 
a full-on reserve list panic level buyout it seems inevitable i'm with you yeah i i actually have a few of these stashed away in some casual decks i have like a collection of decks from over the years and i have a hermit druid living death deck that uses stronghold to uh yep. get good creatures back out of the graveyard um one of my favorite decks of all time actually uh tell me about your first pick uh, my first pick is Foil Worn Power Stone out of uh, Eternal Masters. Right now they're around 15. You can find them for a little bit less in some sellers, but uh, this is one of those cards that this is the only foil version of it. It's like a fixed soul ring. Uh, I don't know if soul ring survives uh, forever in terms of commander. It, they've had a lot of chances to ban it. They've been putting it in every commander product so far, but... Um, it's just like a turn one soul ring is going to get you killed in commander a turn three worn power stone is going to get people glancing at you funny uh i think that this being the only foil uh that's where i want to be uh, i've picked up a few of these on puka trade over the last few days and it, it's just going to be safe and solid and it's got nowhere to go but up since eternal masters is drying up yeah, one one of the things I like really like about this pick is that the spread on it, not between buy list and TCG low, but between the low price posted price for near mint foils versus say the price on the fifteenth copy on TCG is already like fifty percent. I mean, the you can get copies as low as nine dollars on TCG, but pretty quickly if you start to you know dig d down deeper, you're you're looking at fifteen dollar plus copies. So. I, I think that whenever I see that kind of situation, it gives me a, a nice warm feeling inside because it suggests that, <laughs> you know, 10, 15, 20 people need to make a purchase and then boom, we're up 50%. Um, yeah, this one seems real solid. There's no way this is getting a foil printing anytime soon. Even if it gets printed again in Commander in the fall, they won't be foil. Um, so, uh, yeah, great pick. Tell me about your next pick, a card... A card that is close to my heart and one of my commanders. Yeah, so one of the other reserve list cards that's super iconic, um, core to a major tribe in the history of Magic, and you know, you know, is on the reserve list, so it can't get reprinted. Uh, is Sliver Queen? Uh, Sliver Queen is currently available somewhere in the thirty-two, thirty-three dollar kind of range. Um, you might be able to find some locally uh, for a better price. It's going to post up over 50 bucks by the time all of this buyout nonsense is, is dealt with. There are uh, more copies of this still floating around uh, than other cards, um, which surprises me a bit because it's such an obvious, uh, uh, obviously unique uh, effect uh, in the sliver builds. And, um, you know, any five color sliver deck in Commander is going to run this from here to eternity. Um, they're the. Uh, maybe 50, 60 copies available easily online right now. Um, but when, once this takes off, it's going to take off for good. Um, so I would predict I would predict a $15 bump off the $35 price tag landing at 50. Um, that could happen today. That could happen three, <laughs> month, three months from now. Uh, it might take as long as a year, but I, I, it's a very safe place to store your cash. Yeah, she's not going to get reprinted. They threw in uh, oversized versions, I think, in Commander's Arsenal. And it's it just can't go anywhere. They're going to stick with the reserve list come hell or high water. And this is going to be one of the beneficiaries, as is another Stronghold card on your list. Yeah, I mean, Mox Diamond 
uh, has to be primed to fall. It's already shown reasonable gains this year, but um, at my last check, there was uh, just like 11 near mint copies, and the spread was huge. It was like from 75 to $110 um, amongst those copies. And again, that's a strong indicator that as things start, as it starts to tumble, the dominoes will all fall pretty quickly. The looking at the list uh, now, I'm uh, let me just see what the latest version of events is. Yeah, so a few more copies have drained out. The lowest price currently is like $76. Um, and I think it's going to post up once somebody gets serious about it over $125 for probably something like a $50 per copy gain. Very hard to turn that kind of potential down. And again, it's it's only played occasionally. I think it's in lands and legacy, right? Um, and, you know, occasionally can it show up in casual or EDH or, or cube or whatever. But it's mostly just about the fact that it's it's a reserve list mocks um, uh, that can accelerate out, and there just aren't that many copies lying around. I mean, it's it's only going to take twenty or twenty five across most of the major platforms to clean this up, and sooner or later somebody's going to get tempted. Yeah, no, uh, this is a uh, it it is seeing just a little bit of legacy playing. It may, which is why it's already as pricey as it is. Uh, I think it's uh, four of in lands because they can just get it all back. But yeah, uh, the reserve list is a persistent theme this week. Um, I actually have one more pick that is not on the reserve list. I have one more that is. But uh, I really like picking up Thalia's Lieutenant right now, people. Uh, right now it's a rare Shadows of Innistrad. We are going to open a few more packs of that in this draft season. But uh, the Lieutenant is a $4 rare currently because it gets played as a four of in the various flavors of human decks, which only look like they're going to get better with Eldritch Moon. So I am all for picking this up at four. I'm looking to be outing them around seven, and that's going to be a real easy uh, get it at Puka Trade for 400 points, send it out again at uh, seven or 800 points, and just call it a day. Yeah, I mean, the, the Lieutenant was actually one of my early picks for uh, Shadows uh, to uh, get a big bump on the p premise that it could potentially be played in Modern, and that testing has already gone on, and we've seen it appear on camera already um, in some wacky kind of, you know, Tier 3 so far, um, Humans decks in Modern. Uh, the thing with the Champion of the Parish, I mean, it's just such a great one-two punch early out of the gate. And uh, back on show 10... Um, shortly after its release, um, I called the foils as something to be looking for long term. Um, it's mostly been a standard card so far, far, so the foils haven't really moved. I think I called them at you know at six dollars to move get up to twelve down the road on like a one or two year horizon. Um, currently, you can still get some foils under six bucks. There's a few just sitting at around five. Um, and yeah, I, I like the pick uh, for standard. I'm not sure if the, if a rare from the bigger set uh, in the spring uh, can get much higher, but uh, the it's certainly hard to argue that they haven't been pretty dominant thus far. So next on my list is uh, another reserve list card. That is definitely my theme this week. Um, Dream Halls out of Stronghold. Uh, currently available around $8. Um, occasionally sees play in these wacky blue decks that um, with things like Omniscience and, and 
ways of casting spells for free. But really, this is just about, you know, it's a relatively cheap reserve list pick. Uh, Inventory is a little deeper on this one so far, but still only 30, 40, 50 copies max available online. Um, Once somebody decides to topple it, it's only going to cost them a couple thousand dollars at most to clean it all up. Um, And then they're going to get reposted at 20 bucks probably. So, I mean, a relatively safe place, not my top pick out of the reserve list, but definitely the kind of thing I I think is going to move over time. Um, Maybe it takes a little longer than some of the other ones, but still very looking very good. I think it's a, you know, $12 a copy, 150% gains off $8. That's where you want to be. I think this all play in some kind of janky combo with Conflux, the actual card, not the set. Uh, pitching one card to cast Conflux would get you five more cards, and then you could just keep chaining them and do uh, an assortment of broken things, whatever uh, flavor of busted thing you wanted to do in Legacy. So the deck was all about cheating this into play, casting a Conflux for free, and then just going off. So it actually uh, could go even higher since it's actually seeing some play and not just a uh, reserve list spike. Well, I mean, it's played in Omnitel mostly. And most recently, that was a 12th place finish at SCG Legacy Classic Orlando, um, where it was played as a three of. So this is the deck that runs, like, as I was saying, four Force of Will, four Omniscience, four Enter the Infinite, um, three Dream Halls. And you can basically just cast a ton of cards um there's an emercool in the deck uh, so i mean it, it, it does see play i mean it's not a, it's not a huge deck the the that's super popular um but it'll topple i have confidence <laughs> now that i now that, now that i've seen the the recent trends i'm i'm confident in all of these picks so t- tell me about uh, your pick from arabian nights so uh, I am on the reserve list bandwagon uh i have i will tell you i have one copy of the card diamond valley uh, it's $160 right now. It's actually gone up a couple of times in the past year. It's just creeping upward, though. Uh, I got mine in 2000. I know exactly when it was. It was Worlds 2011. Uh, I picked it up for about $100, and I'm just waiting. Honestly, I expect it to hit 250 once it does. It's another one of these reserved list, uh, completionist, surprisingly good in commander and casual formats. We just tap it, sack a dude, and uh, gain that amount of life. Uh, they actually printed a fixed version in high market. It was so good. So uh, it's checking all the boxes that you need to be part of this spike. Yeah, so having just looked the card up on TCG Player anew, um, there's only a single near-mint copy now listed at 350 So the near-mints have been mopped up. Oh, light, man, light, light, already? Light, have they been listening to us already? <laughs> Good lord, their ears are everywhere. Lightly played, um, you can get it as low as 143, which is probably uh, a smart move. Um, There's only four of the lightly played's listed. eBay has, let's see, a couple of copies in the SP to LP range in the high 100s. But yeah, this mop-up's in full effect, so... Your call is accurate, but by the time people see it, they're, they're probably going to be. Too <laughs> I'm late. sorry, I'm late, everybody. <laughs> we, we're doing our best here, but things are moving fast. the uh, The last one on my list this week is another powerhouse from the Urza's block. Uh, Metal worker at Urza's destiny um, is destined to uh, end up over fifty dollars from the about thirty dollars it's at now. Um, 
for something like a 40% gain. If you've never played with Metal Worker, it's utterly oh. busted. Um, if you, you get it out early, you reveal a bunch of artifacts in your hand and cast something for six or eight mana. Um, it's playable in Legacy, um, though the deck that played it the most often uh, has been on the decline. The It's playable in Vintage. It's awesome in Cuban Commander. Um, and it's just it's a semi-iconic card from that era that uh, people will not be surprised to see uh, post gains uh, once the supply gets low enough. Looking on TCG right now, uh, metal workers are you know maybe twenty copies deep, but by the time you get to the end of that list, you're already in the mid forties. So uh, I could see this going down with the rest of the dominoes. Just a matter of time, man. Everything. Uh... Uh, we may be hitting this theme awfully hard as we transition into the general idea this week of uh, all the spikes and buyouts and everything, but the reserve list is what it is. Whether or not you agree with the philosophy that they've put forward, uh, that it's a philosophy that they're going to stick to, and that's something that means no more of these cards are coming. So that means, especially with these old ones, buy away. It... it don't buy them after they spike, but if you see something that hasn't spiked yet, feel free, because it looks like it's only a matter of time. Yeah, I mean, the one caveat I'll throw out there to help protect our listeners a bit, and I know you agree with this, is that the be, be free putting your money into these picks. They're all very solid. Um, and I wouldn't wait. If you hesitate right now, somebody else is just going to get ahead of you. I've already been scooped on a couple of picks uh, earlier this week. There's no point in waiting. Just just get them. <laughs> just, be, just, just be aware it's not something you can automatically flip out. If you buy 20 copies of Ora Stronghold, you're not going to sell 20 copies in a week. This is the, the natural player demand for these cards is relatively low. You might be lucky to sell one or two copies a month. It's the kind of thing where you're going to get a nice steady return over time once the new plateau is established. But if it's your lunch money for next week, don't get involved because um, you're only going to be forced to, to sell them back into the market at a, at a price below what you wanted and it might not be worth your time and hassle. So, I mean, do this with your mid to long term money and I think you'll be very pleased. This is the reserve list is a place to put things that you don't you don't want to spend the money right away, uh, but um, you know if you if you needed a copy uh, you would have gotten one already. If you've been thinking about getting a copy, like oh that would it would be really sweet to have a Gaia's Cradle in my token deck. Um, I believe we've there's still time to move in, especially on a card like that, which is so good. I would. Uh, it would sting me personally to pick up a guy's cradle at this point, remembering what I've gotten cradles for in the past. Uh, I have clear memories of getting enough store credit off of two uh, scavenging ooze out of Commander before they reprinted it to get a guy's cradle from a certain vendor. And uh, it, but it's a card that is only going to get better over time. So if you need one. Uh, save up for one, uh, puka for one, do what you need to do, but know that there's no time like the present. Yeah, that that one is on, that would be the asterisk for me where I think you can buy in post-spike and be just fine. It's not going to go back down. Um, as legacy fades, the demand, the natural play demand for a lot of these cards is just going to get worse and worse. Um, and I do believe legacy's fading. But the um, the price memory... 
uh, and the iconic status. I mean, really what's happening here is these cards are getting, a lot of these cards are getting promoted to, you know, iconic legendary status. Like this is, this is Gaia's Cradle is, from the perspective of somebody who started playing five years ago, there's very little difference between Library of Alexandria and Gaia's Cradle. They're from the same general era. Um, and though there was a ton more of the product printed in the mid to late 90s than there was right at the beginning, um, the effective like inventory, the um, active inventory in the market is actually relatively similar because the, especially con compared to print runs today, because so much of, there's so much attrition over time. There's so many cards that have disappeared under under beds and into closets, possibly never to return. That have been thrown out by people's moms when they went to college. <laughs> that have been played to the point played to the point where they had grape juice spilt on them. That have been damaged, lost, stolen, what have you. And that attrition continues as time marches on. It just gets worse every year. So, um, the, you know, there's always going to be more cradles than there are you know cards from Arabian Nights or what have you. But there really aren't that many cradles around. That's that's how the buyout was enabled. Um, that the 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 vendors uh, who have been holding back inventory are going to start selling it back into the market slowly over time. But a lot of those guys have deep enough pockets that that they don't need to be in a rush. And any speculator that can bring ten or twenty thousand to bear to buy something out doesn't need to be in a rush. Um, and so they won't. They're they're not going to be struggling to try to unload all the copies at a double up in in the same week that they bought them. They're just going to settle in and and you know sell a copy a month for you know as long as it takes to to get their returns. And this is also something that um, vendors have been waiting for in many cases. If you've been a vendor at GPs and such, and you've been buying Gaia's cradles for years. This is what you were hoping for. You're not looking necessarily for just the increase in the retail value. You're looking for the increase in interest. You're looking for the people who want to buy the Gaia's Cradles at 200 uh, when it's got a retail, when TCG has it at a certain price. You can undercut that price, feed into the spike, and still be doubling up on what you paid for that Gaia's Cradle. People need to remember that the people that are the real moves, movers and shakers in MTG Finance are not the ones like us that are making noise on podcasts. Um, they're the guys who like to move quietly and, and with a big wallet uh, in their back pocket. <laughs> they, they don't need to brag. They don't need to, uh, they don't care about community. They're not interested in sharing, swapping stories. Um, <laughs> they just want to make money and they do that effectively. <laughs> and, you know, to be mad at a guy like Craig Berry, who had a minor impact on the market when, you know, major vendors you buy from all the time have been doing this stuff for years. Uh, it's just silly. Yeah. So let, let, let's get into all this buyout stuff. I have so much to say on this topic and I'm dying to make everybody hate me. So let's let's go at it. <laughs> Listen, people are going to hate you for a number of reasons. I don't think that telling people uh, about buyouts is going to do it. Um, <laughs> You financed a trip to Costa Rica or something off one collection flip. That's true. Uh, so, so I I kind so, of hate so, you for that. So you know, <laughs> let's not so, let's not so, deny so people the topic. chance to fully experience the loathing that they yeah, may okay. have in their hearts for you. Yeah, I, I'm happy to be the bullseye um, that absorbs the negative the negative uh, karma that people are throwing into the the market right now. So let's let's talk about this first part of the topic. Are biotes bad for magic? Can you can you guess what my answer is, Cliff? Um, I want to hear the full version, but 
Uh, I'm actually going to agree with you that buyouts are not bad. Um, I'm somebody, before we get into um, your background, let me just tell everybody since I'm only on like my fourth show, uh, I am somebody with zero bankroll for magic. I am somebody whose stated goal is to never buy a card. I'm always trading for cards. Uh, I am always puka for cards, deck box, uh, the Magic Online Trading League. I'm active on all of those. Uh, I am a high school teacher. I have two young children. I live in one of the dumbest housing markets in the country. I have no money for Magic. The only money I spend is occasionally I shell out for drafts and pre-releases. So my perspective is not that of someone who is buying and selling a lot of cards. My perspective is on somebody who loves casual formats. I play EDH uh, two to three times a week. Um, I really love being able to build random, dirty, silly decks in that vein. And I am going to come down on the side of, no, they are not bad. Because, uh, I, you know what, I want to let you give your full reason about why they're not bad. But I just wanted everybody to know, like, I'm a small, 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 small fry when it comes to uh, financial play. I just have enough experience to know what to trade for and what not to trade for. Sure. So let me dive in on this. And it's, it's a complex topic, and I understand uh, why people get emotional about it. Um, there's just something about a buyout that feels like you're getting ripped off, like you're being taken advantage of. It feels like... It's easy to say that the person in, that, that executes on the buyout is prioritizing profit over uh, the desire uh, of some members of the community, and that's all true. Um, but there's a lot more to it. So first off, a buyout can only really be judged by its success. And what I mean by that is that if it works and the cards keep selling at the higher price, then that new price was the correct price, or at least a more correct price, in the sense that the market would support the price. And so the buyout was a wholly rational and efficient action. This is getting you know, into economic theory, but um, you don't need to be a hardcore capitalist to agree with most of these principles, because you know, even in communist China, uh, you know, at the height of communism, these, still, these same things applied for these kinds of goods. We're not talking about essential goods. Um, we're talking about discretionary spending, and that's a totally different animal than if you're trying to hoard water or something. So I mean, <laughs> the, only way I would, I, the only way I would even consider it an issue would be if a buyout took place on a pointless card that no one wanted, and only then because it would be a waste of everybody's time while the buyer attempted to spike the card only to find that no buyers at the higher price existed. The thing is that any card in that scenario would probably have such low demand that the only one hurt would be the buyer who tried to spike it, in which case we can all have a laugh and move on. So, I mean, it's really hard to find a legitimately aggrieved party um, at the end of any given spike. Um, a successful buyout is representative of the fact that, that there's inefficiency in the market, where the maximum utility, um, and when we talk about utility in economic terms, we're talking about the value you might get from a good that can be expressed in any number of different ways. It can be financial value, it can be uh, psychological value, it can be nostalgia, it can be any number of different things. So keep, keep that in mind, that utility is something that you know, represents the package of value you get from buying or selling a good. So 
there's inefficiency in the market and where the maximum utility shared by buyers and sellers is not being achieved, that's where you're going to get these opportunities. In essence, money's being left on the table. And if you understand the flow of money, that means that the buyers at the lower original price were getting value at the expense of everybody else when the price was lower. So if 100 people get a card at $100 that could have been sold just as fast by the people selling it at $200, then those 100 people got a free $10,000 in value that could have been captured by the sellers. And that value would have been recirculated in the market. You know, when we talk about profits, um, uh, it's different than revenue. Revenue is the amount of money that the, the, the seller brings in. Profit is what's left after all their expenses are paid. But even their profits recirculate. You know, all this money goes back into the market. They pay bills, salaries. They buy stuff from other vendors. They, they go buy a television that helps keep that store open. That pays somebody else's salary. That person then has money to go buy magic cards. I mean, it's, it's, people are being very short-sighted about this and not really understanding the, the way that the money flows. It's hilarious that people think that the scenario where the price stays low is somehow better for everyone, when in fact it's only better for the people that get to buy the card at the lower price. I think that one of the things um, that I know that I feel as somebody who does not have the enormous amount of discretionary income to spend on cards uh, I'm not going to lie. I feel jealous. I'm like, who are these people that have thousands and thousands to throw around at cards? Uh, what am I missing out on something? There's, there's some other trick. There must be a, uh, uh, a cheat code or some other unfair thing that's going on in order for them to have this much to spend on chunks of cardboard. And not only are they spending it, but then you're you're turning around and you're making more off of it. I think that, and I, I may get some hell for this, and I'm not sure if I'm prepared for the amount of hell I'm going to catch for it, but I think that the, the perspective of envy and some jealousy about having that amount of discretionary income, because that's what it is. Magic is, like you said, is by no means a necessity. Um, I think that people... One of the things people feel and why it's, we get so riled up is the the I wish I could be a part of this. I wish I could take advantage of this uh, difference between what the value should be and what the value is. Yeah. So, I mean, let, let's talk a little bit more about like where this what the what I mean when I say that there's inefficiency in the marketplace. When we say that a price was incorrect, we most commonly mean that the price elasticity of demand, you know, a technical term from economics. Um, that basically means that uh, the market could support a higher price that would have led to a greater total revenue stream based on the total number of sales times the price of those sales versus what would have been achieved at the original price point. So when the price elasticity of demand for a good is relatively inelastic, the percentage change in quantity demanded is smaller than that in price. So basically what that means is when the price is raised, the total revenue increases because Though less people will buy the card, um, the, the additional revenue makes up for the, the people that have dropped out of the market. So for instance, there are 10 copies of card A available total online. They're all priced at $100. Now largely what, and this is something that people miss all the time, when all the cards are at the same price, that's not because that's the price. That's because the sellers these days are too lazy to test. I mean, it's not lazy, it's about efficiency. 
there's not enough value in it for them to <laughs> test higher prices or lower prices when they can just pull from an API or use TCG player or Star City Games as their baseline. And that's what everybody does this, these days. So at this price, the cards steadily sell, let's say, one a week. Okay, You're selling these $100 cards once a week. Um, but there's hidden potential because many buyers would actually have paid more if they were tested. The thing is they're not going to be tested until somebody tries to move the price. And in the meantime, there's inefficiency in the marketplace. There's value that is not being captured by anybody but the people that are buying the cards. A market actor looks at that, the cards available for sale, a guy like Craig Berry or Martin Schreckel or, you know, to a lesser extent, guys like me, and decides that they think that the elasticity on the card's price is sufficiently low to support a higher price without reducing sales to the point where the total revenues would be less. So they speculatively buy out the card by purchasing all available copies and reposting them one at a time at, say, $200. You know, it was at $100, now it's at $200, through whatever various channels. Now, if the cards sell at any rate above, you know, 0.5 per week, and remember we said they were selling at basically one per week, so if they can sell the, the, the new higher price version of the card at 0.5 per week on average, some amount of additional total revenue will be available to be claimed. The efficiency... Uh, will be gained now by the seller instead of the old buyers that were gaining. So if they sell anywhere close to the original rate, the buyout is fully justified economically because the slack is being taken out of the market, generating greater revenues without slowing sales. Now, does any of that suck any less when you miss out on a car <laughs> you need at a lower price point? No, not at all. But it's an absolutely rational market action. The, the buyouts that result in price control for the buyer are really only possible on cards with really low supply that are either on the reserve list or very unlikely to be reprinted um, or in such, such high demand that there's just really aren't that many around. I mean, there weren't very many Jace Friends Prodigy available, for instance, uh, you know, at the end of 2015 um, because it was just a four of in so many decks in standard. Um, you know, otherwise... In other scenarios, cards will flow back into the market and challenge the chosen resale price until the price comes back into harmony with what, what demand will actually allow. So the market is always right. The price is, is elastic to, or inelastic to some extent, but it will always find its level ground. And because 99% of Magic cards are not susceptible to buyouts, very few of us are actually affected by them. No one is, force, no one is forcing us to buy the cards after the fact. And if we don't like the new price, all we have to do is not buy it. <laughs> and if enough of people agree with us, the price will come back down. Uh, so uh, we've seen this uh, most recently. Uh, we joked about uh, Tree of Perdition and Triskaidekaphobia last week, how uh, it's the jankiest of janky combos and people can't wait to play it. And Triskaidekaphobia went up by a couple of dollars. If you think, uh, I think it got up to $4 and now it's come back down, if you don't want to pay $4 on Triskaidekaphobia, you don't have to. You just have to be patient, and it, it, like you said, everything will come back down. Um, this is something we're all more familiar with, and because the card is more available, it happens quicker, I think is one of the things that people also miss out on. Yeah, I mean... Magic is not a perfectly efficient marketplace, but it is a fairly efficient marketplace. And the advent of, of uh, smartphones and access to common price, uh, commonly referenced price points has done a, gone a long way to actually putting players back in the driver's seat. 
there were people used to trade like MTG Finance ten years ago. Yeah, well, and MTG Finance ten years ago. Sure, was that, but it was also about ripping people off at the trading table. That was going on all over the place. You know, taking a little kid for the rare he just drafted, he didn't know was worth 10 bucks was very, very common. These days, it's very, very uncommon. Not only have we grown to the point where lying is unnecessary um, to make mon money in Magic, but the, the uh, shared access to information um, has made it so that trades are on, in general, uh, just very fair. Um, so back to the topic. If it doesn't mean, if the price doesn't fall after a spike, it means the price was inefficient before um, the spike took place because there is demand at that higher price. And there, you cannot construct an economy that doesn't work on that principle. It doesn't matter how far left you want to push your social policy. Um, it's not going to change how discretionary goods should be priced in the marketplace. Um, so maybe you can't afford a specific competitive deck now. Okay, so play another deck. You don't like any other decks in the format that are cheaper? <laughs> mm, okay, well, wait. All, all of the decks in the format are expensive anyway already because all these spikes we're talking about are basically to do with legacy and vintage um, from the reserve list, if they're relevant at all. And okay, so you were okay with the deck when it was $3,000, but you didn't pull the trigger, and now it's 3500 so now you're just totally priced out? Like, I, I don't get it. I think you're crazy. You, you have many other options in, in Magic and, and in gaming in general, and plenty of them are cheaper. If you like the old price, as Beyonce said, you should have put a ring on it. You can't <laughs> and if you can't afford it, why are you playing Legacy? when you know the format is expensive and likely to get more so. I know it's a great format, but you can play. The best thing about Magic is how many different ways you can play. And none exactly. of this information was was hidden. Guys like us are making noise all the time, pointing you in the right direction. One of the things that people miss out on, especially in um, formats like Cube and Commander, is that while the optimized list might be the most popular online, it is by no means the only way in which you have to play things. Yes, Demonic Tutor, for example, is a $13 to $15 card, depending on what the condition is from Revised. Uh, if you can't, don't want to spend that, pick up a Diabolic Tutor, which costs double the mana and will cost you less than $0.50. Cents. Uh, we could talk to any number of people who have built really great decks, uh, commander decks, casual decks, cubes, and have spent very little money. When you're chasing the, the optimized, then you're, that's when you get in, uh, when you're competing with everyone else. And that's when you start focusing on just that one card. Well, I need these lion's eye diamonds. I need to play storm. And you, you don't, you absolutely don't. You just wanted to but you didn't move in on it. You didn't put the ring on it. I, I like that phrasing. And so now you have to choose to play something else. Burn yeah, is always and it, there. And the beauty of Magic is every format has many, many, many decks available. And when a format gets too consolidated, as it was during Eldrazi Winter, towards a certain archetype, um, we just ban the shit out of something until we fix the game. So the you know you have options. So many options. Um, all the way down to making your own fan sets and playing them with your friends. Ooh, the um, booze cube. Cu cubes are amazing. 
they they can be you can pitch in on a cube with eight friends and play it every week for the rest of your lives and have an awesome time making minor updates. The the, the over focus on competitive magic as a large is l- largely due to um, the game uh, being well structured to attract people that are competitive by nature, um, and the focus in the the magic media has for a long time been on GPs and pro tours and the aspiration of of you know getting to that the 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 top stage on the under the magic spotlight. I get all that. But 95% of you are never making the pro tour. It's probably more like 99% of you are never making the pro tour. Hey, man. Hey, don't crush my dream, bro. (laughs) So to argue that you need LEDs is just ridiculous. I mean, there are just so many other ways to have fun. Okay, so, so the next part of this is, one of the common themes I saw on social media this week was, okay, so fine, like it's rational that you that a buyout would occur. Somebody's going to do it. And this was one of Craig Berry's arg- arguments was that when he was interviewed by Corbin um, was, you know, if I don't do it, someone else is going to. And somebody, people said, including Corbin, okay, but that doesn't mean you should, right? And I, I just think this, this counter argument is so ridiculous. Like if we agree that it's rational, <laughs> if we agree that we live in, in a free market um and and for americans to argue again i mean i'm a canadian so for america to hear americans arguing against the free market is just hilarious to me um given that you're held up across the planet as like the bastion of this concept um and and i'm as left as it comes politically but these forces cannot be denied there there's no as i said earlier there's no I, I live in a socialist state. We we still <laughs> agree with the basic principles of supply and demand. The, I mean, the argument was levied against this guy, uh, Craig Berry, that led s- several recent buyouts, basically suggesting that, suggesting that what, while what he did made sense, it was still unethical, you know, like it was hurting the community. And this community thing is getting invoked more and more frequently now, and it's putting a very bad taste in my mouth. I mean, this is hilarious. It's, it's a huge value judgment for one human being to tell another that their economic utility is more important than someone else's. It's silly to suggest that long-term magic speculators that play and buy product from other vendors and stores that go to tournaments and spread money around and sell people cards below TCG low um, are, not, are not a source of benefit to the community. You have to remember that without smaller vendors and speculators and the money they make off things like spikes, and the equalizing platforms that like Puka Trade and TCG and eBay that give them market access alongside the larger vendors, most magic cards would be consolidated in, in the hands of a few companies like Channel Fireball or Star City Games. And without the competitive pressure that currently exists from the smaller players, trust me, their prices would be much higher than they are now. So the fact that we have um, so many forces competing with each other, we have um, people like me who uh, I occasionally put things on Twitter, like uh, I want to uh, buy a new bunk bed, so I'm going to sell off like a Judge Foil Soul Ring or whatever. So I'm going to try and make a, a few extra dollars that have accumulated in my commander deck. Uh, moving up to people who are selling a playset of whatever on Twitter to the uh, Facebook groups about, there's a lot of Facebook groups out there, people buying and selling stuff. And that flow is exactly what you're saying. It's keeping the bigger sites in check. Uh, eBay does the same thing on a larger scale. Why on earth am I going to pay Star City prices when I can pay eBay prices? Uh, TCG is much the same way. 
in that people get to say, this is the lowest amount of money I'll take for this card. And I will say, awesome, that's 30% less than Channel Fireball wants. So sweet, I will buy that card from you. Um, having these range of people buying and selling, and some of them, yes, are speculators. Uh, I Speculator is probably a really generalized term. Uh, anybody who trades for something thinking it's going to be worth more later is a speculator. Um, I we can all talk about cards we've we've traded for. Uh, my favorite is the forty-something copies of Prophet of Crufix I traded for. Uh, I speculated that it was the best creature ever printed for Commander, and I was too right, and so it's been banned. And so now I have these forty odd copies, including like all kinds of foreign language copies that I snagged up when people I didn't care there was a clash pack. I'm like, no, this is the best creature ever. And it is, and I am sad. But I still have these copies that uh, I trade away when I meet somebody that maybe hasn't seen it. Theros was uh, three years ago now? Two years ago? So the, God, time's passing. Um, this, if you trade for anything or if you hold anything because you think it's going to go up, congratulations, you are a speculator. And I, I think that we throw that term around very, like, in a derogatory fashion for these, you know, evil mustache twirling, I'm going to raise the price on this card, and I'm going to make a bazillion dollars, and there's nothing you can do to stop me, say? And it, it's not... <laughs> we're really taking it out of context. The, the game is, is fundamentally structured around rarity, which meant from the... And limited supply... And from the get-go, that meant that this was going to happen. This was all predestined based on the structure of the game. And if you get into Magic and you look around and you see that that's the case and you still elect to participate, you have nobody to blame but yourself that you're still standing here playing this game. <laughs> you do not need to be playing a game where the average spend per player is over $1,000 a year. You, you, can go play risk. you can go play risk with your friends. Like, no problem. I mean, further for for I mean, the guys posting Hold on, that I'm are do, posting sales. I'm doing the math on a thousand dollars a year. Yeah, so I, the the place I'm getting that number is that Wizards used to be a lot more forthcoming um, back in the day about what uh, about sharing information about how much of sets were printed and what was going on in the Magic market. And at one point, they had actually said that the um, annual spend spend was twelve hundred dollars. You can dig it up if you go look for it online. So let. Let, no, you. But you're exact. I hadn't actually thought of it in in those terms of numbers. Um, if you spend uh, fifteen dollars a draft three times a month, and you do uh, a pre-release every three months, you're going to come up with something like eight hundred dollars a year. Uh, well, and you go and you and you buy a box every time a set comes out. Um, yeah, and then and you that, buy a deck and you buy a deck for standard. And you buy and you some buy more some sleeves. You uh, get a couple extra foils for your commander deck. It, a thousand seems like a really reasonable number. And if you're if you're listening, think about what you spend. Uh, the discussion of whether or not store credit counts for money spent. Uh, I have this conversation with people at my store all the time. Uh, the store does not view that as money spent. Uh, you should look at that as free rolling, but do not confuse it. Uh, yeah, I mean. The bottom line is this. The guys that are posting sales below TCG Low on Twitter and Facebook all day are the same guys you're yelling at all the time for buying stuff when it was low. It's 
because they bought it low, they're happy to give it to you below TCG low. They win, you win. You know, it doesn't always work out equally for everybody. And sometimes, you know, a guy buys out something like Gaia's Cradle that you, and you were planning to buy an elf deck and now you can't afford it because you only had some of the money saved up. And that's a crap feeling. But that doesn't mean that guy's unethical. He's doing what every guy that sells you a can of Coke, a $20 bag of popcorn, uh, an overpriced uh, movie ticket, gas. Water is free, but you pay $3 for it when you buy it from 7-Eleven. Like, I could go on and on about the things you're you're overpaying for that you should be complaining about long before magic. And further, for any of this to be unethical, and truly, you know, any discussion about ethics is about as subjective as it gets. But here's my take. For this to be unethical, one of a few things would need to be true in the case of a run-of-the-mill buyout. First of all, you got to be cornering something much more essential than magic cards. Food, water, shelter, clothing, electricity, what have you. Scenarios where profit was clearly worth less than the utility of survival. Magic cards are luxury goods. The facts surrounding them are public knowledge, and none of us need them. Complaining about the specific prices of specific cards is the worst kind of first world problems whining that I can possibly imagine as a gamer. If you don't like the fact magic prices go up and down, by all means play one of the thousands of games that don't inherently come with an economy as fundamental as a fundamental structure of the success of the game. Um, magic would not be where it is today if all of us weren't chasing that lottery ticket experience that comes out of opening a booster pack. Oh, it's so good. It, it, it's a huge factor in why we're still interested. And, and, but it has a flip side, and you have to accept that. So, so another thing people uh, were talking just, about was... You just talked about the, the lottery ticket. Um, there are people who are buying Eternal Masters right now and opening it because they love that feeling. And uh, whether or not you agree with uh, them doing that, if you're buying a box right now, you're probably buying it from somebody secondhand. You're not getting it from a store, and you are you're chasing that high. You want to open that foil force. You're looking for the foil Caracas or the wasteland, and that that feeling is something that Las Vegas capitalizes on. Um, there is no uh, similar tax for Magic cards as there is in Vegas, where as long as they win 52% of the time, they are perfectly happy. They don't well, care. One that day you, maybe. It Go ahead. You know, they don't, on a roulette wheel, those two green spaces, those are the house wins. You can bet on those, but you'll almost always lose. Every time the house, uh, the, the ball lands on there, they win. And you're chasing that feeling of that one in 36 where you picked your special number and you got there. And you sat down for a $45 Eternal Masters draft and you opened a Caracas and you're like, yes! And you don't think about the times you open a Brago or uh, uh, any of the many other rares in Eternal Masters that are not worth the MSRP of the pack. Yeah, and and we tend to remember our successes and 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 value them much higher than our failures. Um, and likewise, we tend to make a big deal out of buyouts when, in fact, they probably have almost no impact on our magic budget for the year between all the different things we're spending on. And those are the choices we, we are making. We are in full control of our spend on magic. So one of the other things people talked about was, what if he pumps the card? He's pumping and dumping. It's a classic pump and dump. 
I, I'm sorry, people, but if you're calling this a pump and dump when somebody like buys out a card and tells their friends to come along for the ride, you don't understand what a pump and dump is. You, you don't. You just don't get it. The guy, the guy that led the the buyouts, Craig Berry, posts video where he told people he was buying the cards, said he thought they were going to go up, and encouraged others to do the same. A lot of people took issue with the buy list price he suggested was going to be achievable. But if that's lying, it seems more like ignorance than lying to me. And and the, it's only lying if he thinks he's wrong. Like if And there's no evidence that that's the case. The cards he told people to buy have been relatively stable at the new prices, which suggests to me that they would have gotten to that price via another actor's action, even if it took longer. And it doesn't matter if it would have taken longer. People are saying, oh, you know, if he hadn't bought it out, it would have been a slow, steady climb over the course of many months or years. You don't know that. These things are falling like dominoes. They're not all Craig Berry. The vendors have been draining the supply of these reserveless cards out of the market for ages. So have speculators. So have just occasional players picking up cards for EDH decks and what have you. The market is moving in this direction and how fast it moves is not relevant because the market will decide when the price has been set to the appropriate level by either purchasing the item or not. And when people talk about this, they seem to equate it to when a stockbroker tells their clients to buy stocks, gets in before them to get maximum benefit, and then rides the wave of all of the action that they've generated by telling other people to spend money on the stock, and then gets gets out, and here's the key point, without telling them to do the same thing. That's the, that's the part that's totally missing. In a classic pump and dump in the stock market, it, the, the chief problem isn't that they gave out advice. It, it's not even that they made money. It's that they gave gave the advice with the full intention of not fulfilling their contractual ethical obligation to protect their specific clients who they had a fiduciary responsibility to by screwing them over once they helped build up the price. They used the client money to create this umbrella to protect their fraud. And and that's that's a pump and dump. That's not going on here. The, the thing is, in a highly efficient market like the stock market, it's really tough to sell all the shares at the top at a peak price because as you start selling, the market takes notice and the bids get lower really fast. That's why it's called a dump. You're, you're trying to get out of all your shares before you even warn anybody else it's a good idea. And you're trying to slip out of the market out the back door, hidden amongst all of the, the upswing in market action. You have a bunch of people that get left behind and they lose a, a bunch of money and it was your responsibility to protect them. That's impossible to mimic in Magic because if you undercut someone on TCG by a dollar, they can do it right back and things aren't usually moving fast enough outside of a buyout for you to be able to sneak out the back door. You can't dump a whole bunch of cards in the market before people realize what's going on. The, the only opportunity that's even been close to that lately has been Puka Trade being slow to adjust their prices and they've actually changed that so that they're updating much more frequently. Um, at worst, this guy's giving bad advice. He definitely has no real responsibility to be right or to protect our money. And this is truly a case of buyer beware. So, like you said, the ability to undercut TCG, eBay, even stores will undercut each other. There are some stores, uh, even if you go to a Grand Prix or even a big Star City, oh, Star City doesn't like other vendors much, but big events will have a lot of people there. And because they're all in competition, they're trying to find the right point and they'll they'll go for smaller margins larger margins and they'll that's our protection the number of different organizations doing this buying and selling cards is our financial protection from 
uh, crazy stuff happening. It can't get too crazy because there's going to be another vendor who says, that's crazy. I'm going to move out my whole stock. Congratulations. Uh, I've just uh, made profit on all these dual lands or whatever. Yeah, and I mean, people were also throwing around the term market manipulation all over the place, which I just thought was hilarious. Like, he's not manipulating anything. He's taking an action, which leads to a result. But there, there's no there's no hidden information here. Like, to manipulate something is to in a market is to imply that you have access to secrets, that you are um, outwardly lying or misrepresenting something that that people um, it's not going to turn out to be true. And the, the cards that he chose were destined to fall. That they, they weren't bad picks at all. And if he sped it up by telling some friends to buy in, it's no different than many of us have done here and there, like uh, in the back channels on Twitter or on Facebook saying, hey, I'm, I'm moving in on this. Just thought you might want to know about it. Um, for instance, like on TCG Player, that, that, that's a platform that has the potential to manipulate the market if its owners so chose. They could deliberately misrepresent pricing on the site um, to try and influence prices up or down. They could show uh, erroneous price histories. Um, they could do a bunch of things with their data that would lead to prices being uh, incorrect in the market. And then they could go snap up a bunch of cards for cheap. Um, but the solitary supplier, the seller, doesn't have that kind of power. They can set a price after the spike, but they can't make us buy at that price. Like, they cannot make us buy. So they don't have any real control over what happens once they, they spike it. We will, we're only going to buy it if our perceived utility for the card is at least as high as the new price. So it was a $100 card. It's a $200 card now. You're grumbling, but you bought it anyway. Well, then you've just justified the buyout. If that's true, you can't really fault the seller at the higher price because in buying the card at that price, we've just proven the price was too low to begin with. Value was being left on the table. And if we had gotten it at the older price, it would have been us and not them that captured us. And that just swings right back to that whole jealousy thing you were talking about. Um, so I've been thinking about market manipulation. And uh, you've brought up a couple of points in terms of how prices would need to be manipulated and the impossibility of it in the smartphone, TCG, eBay, Amazon, everybody else selling their cards at one point. Um, going back in time... Uh, it was inquest or it was scry for a price and if you imagine that there was one or two magazine companies that printed the only price guides that everybody used and these were also magazines that were in the business of buying cards and selling cards then you have with with one or two specific ones you have the chance for a, a true manipulation of the price I'm not manipulating the market if I put on Twitter, I have a near mint alpha lightning bolt and I want $200 for it. I'm saying this is what I feel comfortable selling this at. Is it higher than the current price? Yes. Is that high enough to where I think it's worth it? I absolutely do. And I'm holding on to my alpha bolt until I can get uh, the clean two bills for it. Yeah, I mean, manipulating the market is where you go out and make a bit, lot of noise saying that, uh, you know, the, you know for a fact the reserve list is being canceled. And you post an article Ooh. saying, and you, you post an article saying, uh, I have insider information. It's happening in two months. I guarantee it. And not everybody would buy that. There's been enough claims made by those kind of people that many of us would 
would not hit the trigger immediately, but there would still be some panic selling. That would be unethical. That would be attempting to manipulate the market based on falsehoods. It's a, it's a form of fraud. That is not what a buyout is. A buyout is normal market action. So one of the other things people said was, but buyouts are going to kill the game. No. No, they, they really, really won't. At worst, they make some old formats less accessible that were already too expensive to support casual interest. The rest of the 99% of Magic players, many of whom play primarily casual, draft, commander, um, maybe they play a little modern, lots of kitchen table Magic going on. That's, that's the real Magic world. I mean, in Magic media, in Magic articles, on Magic social media, Twitter and Facebook, there's the appearance that it's mostly about competitive formats because that's the stuff that they put on camera on Twitch. We cover GPs, we cover pro tours. The pros have a lot of influence over the community, but they are not, they are, they might be the paragons of the community, but they are not representative of the community. Most of the community is, is primarily casual and, and those players are utterly unaffected by these kind of spikes. I mean, ultimately if you're, you know, you're, you're, you don't have a lot of spare cash to throw around on this kind of discretionary spending, or you're just frugal. You just, <laughs> you don't think it's, there's plenty of things in life that are of more value to you than, than spending a lot of money on magic cards. All of those are legit positions, but you don't really need to play legacy then. Um, if you really do, you can do so fairly cheaply on magic online. And if you think that that software is still too expensive or you just hate it, which I can't blame you for, you can borrow a deck or buy a deck with some friends and share it or try to rent a deck from somebody. Or if nothing else works, you know, I've got really in this, this scenario, like you really, you know, you're, you know, poor Timmy broke 10 year old kid, super awesome dude comes to the LGS and would love to try to play the game. If he wants to print out some proxies with his little brother and play them at the kitchen table, I don't think anybody has a problem with that. That's not going to kill the game either. There are even plenty of legacy tournaments where a certain number of proxies are uh, stated in there. Those are, I don't believe they're sanctioned events, but there are plenty of them where people say, yeah, uh, it's too expensive, so uh, proxy up the things you wish you were playing with and go to town. And all it takes is a little research and you will find those events. But the, the key point here is that the, the flexibility of the core game allows you to play whatever level you want. If there's a level you want to play at and you don't currently have the finances for it, then you need to adjust your expectation or your enjoyment level. Build a cube. You will have no better time than building a cube out of stuff you already have. And once you yeah. build a good cube, go build a crappy cube and you're going to enjoy it even more. Yeah, so I mean, the the other big um, uh, point that I saw expressed all over the place this week was that the solution was obviously that the reserved list should be repealed. Um, and I just can't believe we're still having this discussion and debate. People just do not get it. It's always going to be a debate. You don't don't kid yourself. This is going to be a debate that happens next year. It's going to be a debate that happens in two years, uh, and it's going to continue to happen. So, so let me do my best here to nip this in the bud because I just don't get it. <laughs> All right, give the, it the a reserve, shot. The, the for those that weren't around, there was a point in Magic where they printed a set called Chronicles, and Chronicles submarined the value of a lot of cards. And P there was way too much product in the marketplace that summer. As you said, this was the summer with Ice Age and, and Fourth Edition, and they overprinted the crap out of the set. Like they were testing the demand of the market. They got greedy, and they printed way too much, and card values dropped 
through the floor and people got scared and they didn't want, they started, they, there was a big uproar and people demanded some kind of response. And wizards, this led to a weird policy where a whole bunch of cards that were not necessarily, uh, didn't necessarily need the protection in the end and were put on a list where they could never be reprinted. This is primarily of importance for things like the Power Nine and um, Dual Lands, uh, Dual Lands, and Black Lotus, which have become you know limiting factors in both Vintage and Legacy. And I get that that's frustrating, but people really need to understand that it's extremely important when you're running a business of this size, and you know Magic is a three hundred million plus dollar a year marketplace. Um, that. It, th this specific promise is representative of the reliability of Wizards of the Coast's word to the community. The, there is money to be made for sure by you know putting out vintage masters or something um, in paper form, but not enough to make up for the damage to vendors, long-term collectors, and most importantly, the brand. It's really about the brand. Goodwill is a major line item on the corporate balance sheet that basically essentially measures um, the the intangible value of your brand to the people that interact with it. And it is typically measured in millions of dollars. It's not the kind of thing that they are just going to casually throw away. But more to the point, there are way more people whining about the reserve list than players that it actually affects, <laughs> as we said. Mostly, the reserve list is relevant to the sub-1% of Magic players that want to go deeper into Legacy or Vintage, they don't already have a deck, or they want to switch decks. I mean, that's a really thin slice of the market being affected, and the funny thing is that whenever opportunities are lost to those that get left behind, they're at least partially balanced off by the value gained by the folks smart or lucky enough to already own reserve list cards that have appreciated in value. I mean, most of the guys that are put into a position to sell their power or their old school cards are just the collectors that stuck with the game for 20 years and have those cards lying around from when they intelligently traded into them. Don't they deserve to reap the rewards of that aren't they equally members of the community and isn't their utility just as valuable as the guy who lost out you make a really good point about uh, who needs the reserve list to be repealed because um the cards that are on the reserve list a lot of them are trash let's not kid ourselves if you go through the reserve list there are a lot of cards on there that are not very good or horrendously overcosted, or uh, are doing very weird and bizarre things. Uh, you know, on the reserve list as well are all the anti cards, uh, the dexterity cards, things like that. Um, you know, stuff like nobody needs to have. Uh, let's pick uh, Taiga. It's a medium price dual land. Uh, it's gonna go up some more eventually. If you absolutely 100% have to have the taiga, go ahead and get your taiga. If you don't want to drop that much on one land in your commander deck or in your cube, perfectly cool. Grab yourself a stomping ground. Is stomping ground not good enough? There's a Highland Wield or um, Game Trail or any of the bazillion other lands that produce red and green. Is that not good enough? Go get a Savage Lands. It'll give you three colors. Magic has been around long enough, and it's going to be around for a while because they're being very careful with it, that, as we've said, there are replacements. There are more budget-friendly options. And unless you absolutely have to have it to play Legacy and Vintage, 
then you are cutting yourself off from the options that are available. Yeah, and I mean, further to the lottery ticket thing, having unobtainium as part of your game is good for the game. And, and people miss this all the time. There are definitely folks who wish Magic wasn't collectible anymore, but they don't know what they're talking about. There's a version of Magic that would just be subscription-based where they would put out a set, everybody gets the same set of cards in the mail, we all get to play with them for a certain period of time, then they send us a new set and they charge us a, a certain amount of money. Sounds like a good game, actually, and I wouldn't be surprised if if they experimented with that in some other product at some point, but it's not the heart and soul of this game. Rarity levels, the lottery ticket experience of opening boosters and the possibility that a card will spike, all keep people interested in the game. It keeps the economy moving forward. It's why Wizards can, can go from three sets and a crappy core set in the summer to four sets plus additional products, Conspiracy 2 and Eternal... Uh, uh, Eternal Masters all in the same year and still be confident that they're going to sell. Um, overall, the average player spends way more than they ever make on the game, but listening to guys like us can help with that, and it's fine because most hobbies have zero chance of making you any money. I mean, pick almost anything else you want to do, and it's just a it's just a money sink. You oh my god, start, Warhammer. Sure, or you want to start playing video games and buying like uh, 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 additional content. You're going to buy a new outfit for your character for $3 or whatever. That's a whole... That's just a black hole of value. The fact that a guy with, with a mid-90s collection who drafted a lot of Future Sight can buy a vacation with his cards is rare and incredible, and it justifies the frustration of some cards being beyond our means at some point. And we all we all want to chase the dream of coming across a box of cards at a garage sale or at Goodwill or something, and you don't know what's in there, and it could be anything. I mean, I have that experience every time uh, I move. I find boxes of cards and I have to stop what I'm doing. And if it's not a sorted and labeled box, I got to make sure because there might be something in there. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, the other thing here is that people seem to think that Wizards is somehow confused as to how to reinvigorate Legacy. Like it's slipping from their grasp. That's crazy talk. This is a very deliberate long-term policy shift from wizards they do not want to support old school formats like that high power level formats that make use of these super critical um, reserve list cards the reserve list is a barrier but they don't want to remove it they want to let the formats that it that those cards are played in just fade from existence not completely um, but just to let them get down to a very low niche level of activity that can be supported occasionally through sets like eternal masters or what have you but that will increasingly be out of the reach of most players, and that is fine. Here's why. Formats that include a lot of sets with high power levels are automatically harder to design and develop new cards for. Wizards wants to sell like 6-8 products per year, around 1,500 cards or so. They can't easily do that if the dominant format is one where everyone already has most of the cards and only needs a few of the new ones to update their decks. Picture, picture magic. If suddenly you couldn't draft, you couldn't play standard, and you couldn't play modern, there was no commander or EDH. It was all about legacy. And the decks in the format have been around for five to ten years. The metagame shifts back and forth, but they're all pretty much in the same shape. Elves is elves. Storm is storm. And how are they possibly going to print enough cards to keep your interest, to make you want to buy a box, when you can just buy the couple of singles out of it that are at a high enough power level to be played in that format? It just it doesn't make any sense, and it never will. 
Younger formats like Standard, Sealed, or Draft are much better for the health of the game because they require frequent purchases and keep revenues pushing in the right direction. Modern is really the new legacy, but even that can't last forever because eventually we'll have some of the same issues. And we know that Wizards recognizes this because both Modern Masters and Eternal Masters were released as LGS-only products, never sold at big box stores, which totally submarines the total sales volume by a massive amount, and they're only released in a couple of different languages, whereas usually they're released in like 10. So that's largely because, trust me, if they thought the demographics would support a wider release, they would do it. But since most Magic players play younger and or casual formats and aren't all that interested in those products or don't have the extra money for them, they're not going to push it. The conversation would be much more relevant if there was only one official format, but that's a beauty of Magic, as you said, Cliff. There are a bunch of formats, both official and unofficial, and best of all, casual Magic is both cheap, creative, and possibly the best version of the game for anyone who isn't dumb enough to get serious about it. I mean, have you ever had more fun playing Magic than the first three months you were playing? Um... Actually, I've left the game a couple of times. The first three months I was playing, it was my brother and I with one revised starter each. And uh, I really hated his Wall of Stone because it could block three times. So I'm not sure I'm the best one for the first three. But every time I've come back to the game, and I have come back multiple times, uh, most recently um, was uh, M10 into Zendikar when a new shop opened up where I was living. Um, I got back into it, and it was uh, they they changed how they were doing things. They were just coming out of uh, some of the lulls of Magic, and it's never been as much about the cards as it is about the experience with other people. And that's something that Magic Online uh, will give you the experience of the game, and it's an excellent game. It's a well-designed game. Uh, with some of the brightest people you'll ever come across, but the ability to interact with everybody is a big part of why we keep coming back. It's why we play all kinds of formats. It's why we get to do these things. We meet up, and it's okay that we're not buying uh, a new standard deck every season. It's okay that we're not spending the same amount of money because we don't have to to get the enjoyment. Yeah, I mean, I'm. don't get me wrong. I am a thousand percent on board with the need to grow, build, nurture the magic community. I just don't buy for a second that buyouts have a thing to do with that. The the community has so many options. I can all the you know, we had twenty plus cards spike super hard this week. I'm still just gonna walk right out the door, go to my LGS and have an awesome time tonight. I've got I can't wait to play. I can't wait to see somebody. I'm gonna help somebody build the janky deck we talked about. Uh, a friend of mine is proxying them up right now, and he wants to test it against like all these other decks, and he's going to get his face stomped probably 8 out of 10 games. But those two games where he donates a Demonic Pact, or he Triskaidekaphobia is somebody with a Tree of Perdition, he is going to have the biggest smile on his face. He's not going to care. And that's really, like, you can't... I don't want to use something as cliche as you can't put a price on that, but it's a it's an experience that isn't offered because it's a new way to play and win. This it isn't available in most other games. Most other games are very static. They're very unchanging. And one of the things I don't think uh, I appreciate enough is the lead time that they have. They're working on stuff that's going to come out in two years. 
There is not another game out there with that level of pre-planning. And a lot of it is to test out what it's going to be like in the uh, the new standard. They, uh, Sam Stoddard on Fridays talks about the future future league. Um, I want to point out something else about the reserve list. Uh, they have tried a trickle of things here and there. And there was an immediate outcry. Uh, if you go back to one of the judge promos for Thawing Glaciers, Thawing Glaciers is a reserve list card. And they said, they said, well, we're gonna we're gonna test the waters on this. And there was an immediate outcry, not just from people who owned it, but from vendors and stores who had built up a a collection of value. And they said, don't do this. You, as an individual, might think that the reserve list is stopping you from owning all these really awesome, expensive things. But if they revoked it, they would not have the same value that they have. Yeah, I mean, a tremendous. If the reserve list was abolished this morning, the it would all it would represent is a massive transfer of value from the vendors who have invested in that product to the players who would get access to it via something like, I'm assuming we're calling it Vintage Masters or something. Vintage Masters and, is a and, nice shorthand and, for that. Sure, and. You know, let's say they reprint Black Lotus, and it's they make it a, a a mythic in that set, and it's like the same availability as something like um, Eternal Masters, maybe is or or like an FTV product. First of all, nobody's going to be happy because they're not printing; it's not available at big box stores. So it's not enough. I mean, they're going to feel they're going to feel like it's a bait and switch, right? Everybody's going to want a full set of Power Nine, all the like all the duels, everything. Everybody wants you know forty new duels, everything. And they're, if they're lucky, going to get a hold of one box of it, and then they're just going <laughs> to, they're just going to complain that they didn't get it enough. Uh, yes. They didn't get any. Um, they're going to complain when they don't like the new art. They're going to complain when uh, the cards uh, are relatively cheap on the first opening weekend and then spike again. Like it, it it's a short term solution to a, a a problem that doesn't even exist. The the that's the main point is that this is. This is solving a problem for a very vocal, but small number, but relatively compared to the size of the people who play, compared to the player base, there are not that many people who give a crap about the reserve list. There are a yeah. lot more people who give a crap about what's on the commander band list, what's on the pauper band list. What uh, There are probably more people who care about what's the best eight and nine drop in Momir basic than there are people who are like, let's get rid of the reserve list. Um, it, it's a vocal minority. Um, it is mostly composed of people that want to see legacy thrive because they believe it's a great format and it is a great format, but they need to understand that the dynamics are not in place for that format to be supported as a primary format anymore. It's a niche format, um, more niche than almost any other format that would come off the top of your head. It's not quite vintage, but it's, it's moving in that direction. And if you, it, and if you, are upset that people in your neighborhood can't afford legacy decks. Trust me, this isn't going to solve the problem. Like the demographics <laughs> in your neighborhood, the, the, the demographics in your neighborhood don't support high value decks, period. And the, the, even if they reprinted some of this stuff, they wouldn't reprint all of it. And, and they wouldn't reprint it at a level that would necessarily make it easily accessible. It would be more accessible. You might have a vintage deco from $10,000 to three thousand dollars or four thousand dollars and that would be like them really pushing it in the set oh. um but 
that's still three or four thousand dollars. Like this is a silly conversation. If if you've got people that you want to play magic with and they can't afford to go big, figure out some other way to play with them. There there are so many other formats. If if some kid got uh, priced out of his elves deck this week on the back of Gaia's Cradle Spiking, um, that he had been talking to you about for a couple months. Sit down with him tonight, build community by figuring out with him how he can play another deck that maybe he'll like more. Figure out how to get him into another format that that he can more easily afford. Help the kid get a job so he can afford whatever he wants. I mean, they, there are so many ways to build community that can come out of price fluctuations that I just don't buy for a second that they're bad for the game. The main thing that, that and you, you mentioned this uh, at least once, is that... Um, so few people are actually affected by a buyout. The only people who are cranky about a buyout are the ones who are thinking about getting it but didn't. And like you said, that's that's unfortunate uh, for that very small number of people who needed these specific cards for this specific format. And you have to be talking about legacy or vintage because if you start whining that I can't get a cradle in my token deck for a commander... I'm going to point you to a lot of other options that you have that will be just as broken. I assure you, it won't be quite as uh, easy to break, but, you know, a little work, and we can make your token deck uh, sing a four-part harmony that has nothing to do with Gaia's Cradle. Testify. So we've been ranting for an hour, mostly preaching to the (laughs) choir, Um, and uh, I'm sure many have tuned out by now. So... That's a wrap for this week's folks. Uh, where can people find you online, Cliff? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm Word of Commander there. I also have columns that go up on Fridays. Uh, we're recording this on a Friday. My piece about the mythics of Eternal Master, uh, mythic Eternal Master, mythics of Eldritch Moon just went up. It's the similarities of the uh, set names that's messing with me. Cool. Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my occasional articles on MTGPrice.com, including a 9,000-word monster uh, that I posted with Brian Dale on the topic of Puka Trade inflation this week. If you're at all interested in Puka Trade, I encourage you to check it out uh, and engage with us on the discussion of how to make that platform uh, better for everybody involved. Um, I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com pro trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Take care, everybody. I hope this didn't get too technical or too uh, crazy for you. Uh, If you stayed all the way to the end, we really appreciate your dedication. Indeed. And Cliff, we'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm